Good morning, brothers and sisters, again. We're now continuing to move through the book of Luke. And this morning we'll be looking at chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. If you're utilizing a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 861. 861. This chapter, Jesus has been calling his disciples, whom would later be called apostles. He's demonstrated his power over the elements of existence, of life and human existence. And here he is going to teach us a lot more. (laughs) This is God's holy and inerrant word. So let's give careful attention to it as it is being read. Verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Our God and our Father, again, we come before you asking that you would illumine our minds and teach us that which you would have us to hear through this text. Jesus says that he has come to call that who we are, that which we are, sinners in need of repentance. So speak to our hearts, convict us, where we need to be convicted, teach us, guide us, equip us, so that we might be those whom you can send out into every sphere of influence to accomplish your work to the praise of your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this past week, someone in my neighborhood asked me about the prospect of her interacting with her niece, who is in a same-sex relationship. She has a great desire to love her niece and for her niece to know that she loves her. But she was grievously concerned by the prospect of of not being faithful to God and his word. This saw as a consequence of her interaction with someone who was in her mind clearly outside the orb of obedience to God. As I reflected on my conversation with my neighbor, it caused me to remember a blog piece that I had written late last year. I wrote it in a a members-only forum uh, called Under the Tamarind Tree. Now, for some context, a tamarind tree is a tree that produces a shelled fruit that's both spicy and kind of sweet. And they grow slowly, but they become huge and spread out. And they're all over the island of St. Croix and people congregate under them and talk under the tamarind tree. So as you're growing up, you climb them, you lay in them, and you hang out under them. So that's why they created this forum and called it Under the Tamarind Tree. And so in that blog, I wrote that I had recently visited the island. It was in May. And it occurred to me that there was a multitude of churches all over the island. And it struck me that those same churches and the families that were in them were all there while I was growing up. 
I didn't mention that during the latter part of my time on that island, one could have rightfully referred to me as a lost thug, a sin-sick, foolish young man hanging out with folks that are on the road to certain destruction. Here I was on an island whose name in English means Holy Cross, St. Croix, an island who every time they see something in the Bible, they create a holiday, Three Kings Day and, and so on and so forth, whose landscape was filled with churches all over, who had tons of people active in those churches, but somehow the church never came to me. And so the answer or the question was, was why? Why weren't those people who were inside those buildings, who knew the love of Christ, who had been exposed to his goodness and the truth of his word, why were they not outside the building talking to me? Well, brothers and sisters, now that I'm on this side of that question, I can assert that there were several reasons for what I did or did not know. But here is where I say, thank God for Jesus. For you see, I, I now know that it was for, wasn't for Jesus, we would still be in our sin, still be in our need of something or someone to pay a price that we were unable to. We get that. We know that. But the grace of our Lord goes even deeper than that. For you see, it wasn't, if it wasn't for Jesus, we would be blind to our fallen natural tendency towards self-righteousness. As you've heard before, this dynamic is clearly seen in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If not for Jesus, for instance, many of us would walk around thinking, well, I've never murdered anyone. But then Jesus comes along and we hear, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Again, we say, I've been faithful to my spouse all the days of our marriage. Shucks, even before we got married. And then Jesus shows up and says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus' presence and his words leave no room for self-righteousness. Instead, they expose the existence of that tendency and then moves those who have been exposed to his presence, his power, and his word to either humble themselves or remain standing in their sin. In this passage, Jesus does this through the use of one of his best teaching tools, the Pharisees. Folks, if you haven't realized it by now, we need to be super grateful for the Pharisees. After all, it's because of them that Jesus' disciples were experientially able to learn about the spirit of the law, the heights of grace, how we should and should not be, and the second person of the Trinity. This morning, I want us to see those things under these three headings. The call of the wretched, the response of the rescued and the righteous, and a declaration of good news. So first, the call of the wretched. Look at verses 28 and 29. They read, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. 
Luke, the writer of this gospel, wastes no time in capturing the eyes of those who would have been reading this back in the first century. They would have immediately recognized and said to themselves, in the beginning, he called a group of fishermen to be his disciples. Well, that was different. He didn't choose the best scholars of his day, the best theologians. No, he chose unschooled men who appeared to be honest and hardworking. Different, but I get it. But this, a tax collector? You see, tax collectors were the absolute scourge of societies in those days. They were considered to be traitors to their own people and thus were not even allowed to enter a synagogue. Effectually, they were considered the biggest sinners of sin in those days. Now, in case you're wondering, God is the one who ordained the payment of taxes for the common good of people who reside in the boundaries that he himself set up. That's according to Acts 17.26. Well, as is the case with just about anything, however, that God has brought into existence as a consequence of sin, the system of taxation in Rome was fraught with corruption. There were two different categories of tax collectors, the Gabai and the Mokesh. The Gabais collected land and poll and income taxes. The Mokesh were divided into two classes. The big Mokeshes were the ones who purchased a tax franchise from Rome through a bidding process, and the little Mokesh were the ones who were hired by the big Mokesh to be boots on the ground folks who collected the taxes. And that's what Levi was. That's why he was in a tax booth. He was a little Mokesh. That does not mean that he wasn't rich. They were so corrupt that all of them were rich. They taxed anything their minds could conceive of. The transport of goods, grain, letters, the usage of roads, bridge crossings, and even every, each wheel of a cart that was being used to transport stuff. They were the face of the corrupt tax systems and thus were the, the ones who were hated above measure. And by the way, if, if you don't believe this stuff still happens today, from 1996 to 1999, I worked in the accounting department of two car dealerships that were owned by the same person. It was there that I learned that when you buy a car, if the dealership can get you to pay a higher percentage rate than what your credit score merits, they get to keep half of it and the finance company gets to keep the other half. So in that example, if you have earned a, a, a rating of 5% on a purchase of a car, and they can get you in the finance office, they call that the box, to pay 8%, the finance company gets 1.5% of that 3%, and the dealership gets that same amount as residual income. It goes even beyond that. When you go in the box, they add on all sorts of stuff. They say, do you want additional warranty outside of the, the, the manufacturer's warranty? Everything they pile on onto the car is exorbitantly adding to the interest that you're going to pay and that they're going to be able to split amongst themselves. The same sort of practices were occurring even then. Lisa to say, I have no idea of how the people in those days felt about that sort of stuff. I know rather how they felt. Here's another thing the tax collectors did that was despicable. I'm trying to show you how they saw these folks as the worst of worst, 
after leveling the charges on you, if you didn't have the money to pay, they would loan it to you at an extremely high rate of interest. This too is still happening today. Shortly before I had the job I had in that car dealership, I worked at a rent-to-own business as an account manager. Now don't let that name fool you. What I was was a glorified money or merchant collector. If you were overdue on your payment, I would visit your house with a van and would either take my merchandise or get paid. Now, what's wrong with that, you ask? Think about this. I went to a woman's home who had two weeks left to pay for her VCR. Went there with the mindset of taking it if she didn't give me my money. The terms of her agreement was set at $9.99 for 78 weeks. When I went to her house, she had already made 76 payments for VCR, which at that time you could have gotten at Walmart or Best Buy or something to that effect for $250. In case you're counting, she had already paid $759 for what I was supposed to go and take away from her. Now think about how you would feel if you found out that I was doing that to you and I was up here preaching to you. That is how those folks felt about Levi. They were the scummy. This was the scummy type of practice of a tax collector in Jesus' day. And thus no one was considered to be of good character would hang around them. Instead, people like the thugs, they had hired to intimidate people and the other dregs of society are the ones who would hang around them. And that is what you see in our text. There's an air of loneliness when you're like this but also. You can have all those people, the dregs of society. You can have everyone around you running around you. But you trust no one or nothing. And you have no sense of peace. And the void that only God can fill feels as wide as the ocean. And so in light of the things you've just heard me say, think how stunning it would have been around those, for those around Jesus to hear him utter the words, follow me, to this scourge of society. The man who had been excommunicated from the spiritual life of his community, who was lost and all alone, who had gained a whole world in terms of wealth, but lost knew that his soul was lost. He was now being effectually called by the Son of God himself. Like all the folks around this region, he too had probably heard the good news you see about the man who had proclaimed that he had come to set the captive free, to give sight to the blind and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He too had probably heard that this man was one who spoke not as one who referred to others, but as one who himself was the authority. And how did he respond? How did Levi respond? Our next point, the response of the rescued and, and the righteous. There are two contrasting responses in our text, Levi's and the Pharisees. The end of verse 28 tells us that Levi left everything and followed Jesus. We know from the next verse that that does not mean that he gave up all his material wealth because it tells us here that he threw a party in his house 
And he, because of his wealth, he probably had a big house, and that's why he could host all those folks. But here we see that Jesus came first in Levi's life. From this point on, Levi was made first and the priority in his life. And the word follow there isn't just saying it was just in that instance, but rather as a way of life going forward. He had experienced the calling of the Savior himself. He was effectually called. He was elected by our Lord. And he left everything in his mind. And Christ became first and foremost what was important to him. The text goes on to reinforce that thought because the very next thing we read is that Levi is throwing a party in his house. Now let me tell you, those who, who truly understand what God has done for them, those who understand the depths of their own depravity because God has revealed it to them, those who really know that they know that they know who they are and who God is to them, the goodness that he has towards them, the mercies that has been extended towards them. Oh my goodness. When they experientially understand that God has delivered them from judgment unto life, when they grab hold of how much they needed Christ and how much he loves them, they become that child in a candy store, if you know what I'm talking about. Psalm 16:11 says, in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. And that's what you see here in our text signified by the fact that it was a great feast concerning this Riken wrote. As soon as Levi started to follow Jesus, he began to worship. This is what happens when someone welcomes Jesus into his life and knows for sure that he has received the free gift of eternal life. He starts to have fellowship with Jesus and to give him the honor that he deserves Levi did this by throwing a party for Jesus. The other thing that Levi did here was invite the other scourges of society to his party. We see that in the latter part of verse 29 where it says there was a large company of tax collectors and other sinners or others reclining at table with them. Levi was not content to keep the message of the good news that Jesus Christ had come into his life to himself. He recognized the depths of his own depravity. And because he understood who God was and the mercies that were being extended to him, the joy of the Lord filled him so much that he could not contain himself. So he threw a party and invited those who he knew in his spirit of influence. Are we so fired up? Are we so in love with God? Do we recognize how good God has been to us to the point that we cannot keep that message to ourselves? Are we? Levi sure was. Who can bear witness to the goodness of God, to those mercies that are renewed each and every day, if not us? Now it is on the heel of this wonderful episode of God's election, his effectual calling, and the evangelistic joy that characterizes a sinner who is saved by grace and knows it, that we see a different reaction or response in this text. Look at verse 30. It reads, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, 
Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You know, for folks who wanted nothing to do with unrighteousness or the dregs of societies, these Pharisees sure seem to always be wherever the sin party was. <laughs> in this case, there is no indication that they were inside the building, but they sure were probably staring through the window, you see. And so when the disciples and Jesus came outside, that's probably when they confronted them. Now the question they ask, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Revealed a couple of things about them. First, they subscribed to what R.C. Sproul and R. Kent Hughes referred to as salvation by segregation. They built that theological framework from texts like Leviticus 10.10, which says, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the clean and the unclean. They were persuaded in their own minds that they were the ones that were clean and set apart. And thus they had a duty to remain separate. They missed a whole lot. Secondly, and more importantly, their question revealed the fact that they were spiritually blind and desperately in need of, of which Jesus, of that which Jesus was offering, the recovery of sight to the blind. As it were, their blindness did not allow them to read and understand the very scriptures they claimed to be standing on. If it did, their responses to Jesus' interaction with the tax collectors and other sinners would have been completely different. But it didn't allow them to read and understand, for instance, verses like Hosea 6.6, which says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. Hughes' comments on that verse wrote, The truth of Hosea 6.6, Hosea 6.6, meant so much to Jesus that he apparently referenced it again in his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now before we find ourselves shaking our heads and fists at the Pharisees, as we often are so apt to do, and before we move to what Jesus' response was, listen to what Philip Ryken says here concerning this. Before we see how Jesus responded, we need to examine our own hearts. The Pharisee is not someone we find outside the church, but inside. These men were committed to God. They knew their theology, but they did not share God's heart for ministry. They did not have the love of Jesus for lost and needy sinners. Typically, a lost and needy sinner looks pretty bad on the outside. And so part of what Caleb was pre speaking on when he read this morning sort of reveals that sort of prejudice against those by those of us who would call ourselves the righteous. Folks, I don't know about you, but I'm definitely a Pharisee at heart to some degree. I'm greatly angered by some of the ideological thoughts that's currently flowing in our political or politicized marketplace of ideas. So much so that my first instinct is to have absolutely nothing to do with several groups of people. A part of me sees those people who I strongly disagree with, and it's my mind. In my mind, it's because they strongly agree, disagree with God. They love themselves. They don't honor God. And these are folks who are out here, those folks are out here uh, reading books, trying to read perverted books to children while dressed as a member 
of the opposite sex. Folks who are doing all sorts of stuff, bringing down the nation that I was born in and love. Every kind of sin, big and everything else that you see, these folks absolutely are showing that they hate the God who I love. And part of me says that I should go on that side and not engage with them on this side. Now, if you're like me, Jesus has something to say to you. The same exact thing he said here to the Pharisees. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. One thing we can all agree on here, if we were to go to UMC or Baptist right now, we wouldn't see a single healthy person waiting to see a doctor. We might see Ole Miss and Mississippi State stickers, but we ain't seeing no healthy person waiting to be helped. It's only those who are infirmed that would be there. And so it is in the spiritual realm with one key difference. All of us are in to different degrees. All of us are in different degrees of ailment. First, there are some of us who have experienced the rescuing grace of God. We've been justified, and now we're living in God's kingdom, not as people who are perfect, but as sinners who are still in need of the gospel each and every day. It is when we fail to recognize this ongoing ailment and our own ongoing need of grace that we become prone to the wiles of self-righteousness. And then there are those like the Pharisees in our text who have not, who have an air of religiosity about them. But as far, they're as far from God as the sun is from the earth. In their heart of hearts, they believe they're saved because they have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. They're not like those people over there. Brothers and sisters, if this folks, if those folks continued on that road, there is a sure guarantee that they will suffer eternal damnation. You think of Matthew 7, 21, where they go before the Lord and they say, Lord, Lord, then we cast out demons in your name. Then we prophesy in your name. Did we do all these great works in your name? And what did he say? Get away from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Trying to establish your own way through the law will never get you anywhere but to hell. It is through God and God alone. And Jesus ends our passage with these words that we desperately needed to hear and rest on. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That, my brothers and sisters, is great, great news. For who are those sinners? The answer is all of us. All of us. Jesus left the glories of heaven and lived the perfect life that we weren't able to. In God's economy, in his perfection, in his infinite holiness, we're all accounted as scourges outside of Christ. We are the one that Jesus is talking about. When they talk about Levi, the scourge of the earth, sinners of sinners, no matter how accomplished you might be on the outside, the depth and the, the, the gap between 
you and God in terms of your ability to merit or to earn your salvation is unfixable. You cannot close that gap. And so there is where Jesus comes in and he says, I have not come to call the righteous. He's being sarcastic here to some degree because the Pharisees had dug their feet in and declared that they were meritoriously earning their way to heaven by observing the law of God. But there is no such truth. And so because they were grounded like that, he left them where they were. Some later would come to the knowledge of Christ. But for the most part, they were called here the righteous, not because they were, but because they thought they were. Let none of us think that we are righteous outside of Christ. Let none of us deceive ourselves into thinking because we've done 51% good and 49% bad that God would look and wink at us and let us into the pearly gates of heaven. Let none of us think that, but let all of us magnify the cross of Jesus Christ as we recognize that it is because of him and him alone that we are able to call God our Father. And that is great news that Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, to call you and me to repentance. To cause us to, to turn around in our understanding. To move from being inward in ourselves and move outward to serving God and his people. Thus we can now love him with all our heart, minds, and soul and our neighbors as ourselves. We have become salt and light. And so it is my understanding of this passage that contributed to me saying to my neighbor. If you don't interact with your same-sex niece, then who is going to share the gospel with her? Whose life is going to demonstrate the love of Christ that never ceases before her? Who in her hearing would tell her of the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel veins where sinners who are plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains who but you, my sister? And may I brag on my wife and tell you that the reason I ended up in her house was because my wife texted me while she was in that house and asked me to come speak to that lady. I got an Andrew in my house, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. Andrew was not visible. He was working behind the scenes. Brothers and sisters, let us recognize the grace of God, that he has come to save sinners like you and I. And now let us not be in the seat of a Pharisee and not go outside the doors and speak to those who God and everyone else knows to be sinners but are deeply in need of his grace. We are the ones who experienced it, and we are the ones that he's called to share it all to the praise of his glory. Amen? Let's pray. A gracious heavenly father, oh, our hearts are so filled. Like Levi, we recognize that we were desperately lost outside the communion of faith with you, 
outside that wonderful perfection of loving communion between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But by your grace, we've been embraced and drawn into that. We've been embraced and drawn into this body where we are also now able to exhibit that love. Father, we pray that we would be equipped to go out into the highways and byways, into our sphere of influence, and like Levi, throw a party in terms of our hearts pouring out the gospel of the good news to those whom you bring across our path. Guide us in our thinking to that end. Be with us, we pray. And again, we thank you so much for all that you've done in our lives, all that you're continuing to do, and those mercies that are renewed each and every morning all the way until that time when we will see you face to face. These things we pray in your son's mighty name. Amen.